Some special visitors with us today, and we thank you, thank you for your presence. And we invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, and we want to look together at verses 13 through 16, which tell us that we are the salt of the earth, and we are to be the light of of the world. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is good for is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Two powerful metaphors there, salt and light. We are to be... The salt of the earth, we are to be the light of the world. Salt, you are the salt of the earth. It is hard for people to realize how valuable salt is. In in a world where people are often encouraged to decrease their salt intake, Um, We may not understand how salt is present in every cell of the body. And do you know that our English term salary actually comes from a Latin term which deals with paying Roman soldiers, giving them a salt allotment. Salt was considered very valuable in the ancient world and is still valuable in our world. Now the two most important uses of salt in the ancient world, one is used for flavoring and that is mentioned in scripture. Can what is tasteless be eaten without salt? Job 6 verse 6. And let your speech be seasoned with salt. Colossians 4 in verse 6. The idea of seasoning and also the idea of preservation of food. They didn't have all the refrigerators that we have today. And often things were maintained by salting them. I know my, uh, in my high school years, I had a secular job working for my uh, grandmother in uh, Dixon, Tennessee at a store. And there were pieces of meat she would leave out a long time. And as a young person that kind of mystified me, but they were so heavily salted, they did not need to be refrigerated. You are the salt of the earth. Now, biblically, salt was used sometimes in making covenants. The Bible talks in Leviticus 2 verse 13, Numbers 18, 19, and 2 Chronicles 13, 5 of a covenant 
of salt. Maybe salt was eaten together as, as people made a covenant. But God's covenant with His people is described in those terms, in those passages. But you are the salt of the earth. But there's a warning that's found in this. A warning for you and me. That the salt becomes tasteless, then it is good for nothing. If the salt loses its taste, when Luke calls us, or or Jesus calls us in the Gospel of Luke, to consider our discipleship, verses 34 and 35 of Luke 14, say salt is good, but if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt in that particular passage can lose its taste. Now, from what I'm told, that salt, that pure salt does not lose its taste. But often in those days, white powders were mixed together with salt. And if it loses its sense of taste, how will you season it? And that is a warning to us that we as the salt of the earth may lose our seasoning. And the word for loses one's taste here is used in Romans 1.22 and 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20 for become foolish. If we become foolish, if we become rebellious, if we become disobedient, if we turn back away from God, the source of all gifts, we lose our taste and we are good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled by men. We are the salt of the earth. But the text also describes us as being the light of the world. And by by the way, in verse 13 and verse 14, in both cases, the you is emphatic. It's placed first in the sentence to stress you are the salt. You are the light. You are the light of the world. In the Bible, there is a regular distinction between light and darkness. Light representing purity and holiness and godliness. And darkness representing sin and evil and wickedness. For example, God says in 1 John 1, in verse 5, the Bible says God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. God is purity and holiness and all that is good and all that is right. God is light and in Him is no darkness. Jesus says, I am the light in John 8 and verse 12. And the one who follows me will not walk in darkness. The distinction between light and darkness, between righteousness and wickedness. Between good and evil, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Think of a city that is placed upon a hill where the lights shine and the lights glow. And at night travelers can see it and definitely know the way to the city. 
And that is a picture used of us as disciples. Some believe that that description of a city set on a hill is meant to be like the temple in Isaiah 2, which was set at the chief of the mountains and all nations will flow into it. Then in a certain sense, what he is saying of believers here is what was said of the temple there. But the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden and a person doesn't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, that it gives light to all that are in the house. The wind was blowing really hard the last few days. I don't know if anyone here lost electricity or not. We did not uh, in our house. In such situations at Florida, we always lost electricity. Lights always went out. And as you stumble in complete darkness to try to find a flashlight or try to find a candle, what is the logic of lighting the flashlight and then putting it under your coat? It doesn't serve much of a purpose there, does it? The purpose of the light is to be seen. The purpose of the light is to make everything visible. And as Christians, you don't lie to lie to put it under a bushel, but to put it on a lampstand to give life to everyone that is in the house. And the Bible says, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. We're not trying to call attention to ourselves. We're not trying to get everyone to look at us. But we're trying to point people to God. And let the world see your light. Let them see your light. That they may glorify God. Now some have seen a contradiction between this and Matthew 6 and verse 1. Which says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But in that passage, we are told the motive of the person who is practicing their righteousness. They are doing it to be noticed by men. In verse 2, they want their uh, giving to be done in a way to be honored by men. To their prayers to be seen by men. Verse 5. And, and all of that is what's forbidden. What is the motive for our actions? The motive for our actions is to be giving glory to God. Giving honor to Him. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe Serve them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Last week, we talked about those characteristics described in the Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed 
are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And blessed are the peacemakers. That described a character. And we talked about how the last beatitude described not so much a character, but a response to that character. Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for righteousness sake. Some people respond to those beatitudes and those characteristics in our lives. Some people respond to them by persecution, criticism. Other people respond to those characteristics. I've seen our good works. And glorifying God. Who is a role model? Every person is a role model to someone. And there are people watching you. Some you may be keenly aware of. And others that you may not recognize. People are watching what we do. And they're listening to what we say. And what we do and what we say shades to some degree their view of what should be done and what should be said. And one of the strongest evangelistic tools we have is to be living in a godly way. And what does the world see? In us, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. Now, what do these two illustrations, what do these two metaphors of salt and light teach us about our world? First of all, They teach us about our world, that our world is a place of death and decay. And it has been that way ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. As sin enters the world, God speaks to Adam in Genesis 3, 17 through 19 and says, From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. There is a connection between sin and death. In Romans chapter 5, you see it repeated in that genealogy as you read the phrase some eight times, and he died. The wages of sin are death. Physically, spiritually, and in all ways just missing out on what life really is. The book of Romans particularly makes that link. And the Bible talks about those who do such things are worthy of death. In Romans 1, in verse 32, in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin are death. Our world is a place of decay and death. Our world is a place of disaster. And in the midst of that world, we are called to be salt, to preserve our decay, disastrous world. 
In Genesis chapter 18, as Abraham intercedes for the people of Sodom, God agrees to spare the city for ten righteous people. And I don't doubt it today that God spares our world because of a relative few who are seeking Him, who are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That tells us that we are in a world of darkness. And as I was preparing this lesson, I thought about some news events that have happened over the last several years. And and some of them I, I would be hesitant to share even with two or three of you. Because they were so dark and so sinister. They're deeply disturbing. The only value of such stories is they remind us if we cast off service to God and we live in disobedience to Him, there's no logical stopping point. Our world is a place of darkness. And not only is it a place of darkness, it is a place that is headed for a deeper darkness. The passages behind me, Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 25, verse 30, speak of a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And into this world of corruption, into this world of darkness, Jesus Christ came. The light of the world. The light, which John 1 verse 9 tells us, enlightens every man coming in the world. Jesus came as a light. And we are to reflect this light. What does this say about our world? It says we live in a corrupt world. We live in a dark world. But what does it say about us? What does it say about disciples? I think the demands of this passage are pretty clear. This passage demands personal holiness and public exposure. Personal holiness. If we are conformed to the world, as Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 warn us against, If we are conformed to the world, if our lives are no different from the world, if we walk just like they do and say the same things they do, then there's going to be a difference to attract them to the Lord. There has to be personal holiness. But just like the soul has to be rubbed into the meat to do any good, So we have to take that light into a dark world in order to do good. There must be personal holiness. There must be public exposure. Let me ask you a question. What could you tell me about the essence? 
What could you tell me about them? My guess is you could tell me a little bit about the Sadducees. We are very different about the Sadducees. But you could tell me a little bit, and you could probably tell me they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is most notable. You could tell me more things about the Pharisees. But you probably couldn't tell me much of anything about the Essenes. There are some of you that would know that the Essenes are responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they're never mentioned in the New Testament. And did not have much impact on their own world. They have had impacts, practically, upon the 20th and 21st century world through their writings. But they didn't have much influence on that world. Do you know why? Because they totally withdrew from society. We must have time to pursue personal holiness, to study the Lord's Word, to read His Word, to pray to Him, to draw near to Him, to develop personal holiness, and at the same time, to be doing this not always under a basket, but to let our life shine. Now, I don't know all the answers as far as how to do that. But let me illustrate something. I don't like you to raise your hand. If you've ever had a discussion about your faith, about their faith, with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness? How many of you have ever done that? A lot of hands up. How many of you have ever talked about your faith and their faith to an Amish or to a Mennonite? Raise your One I think we see right there a little bit of difference between how those groups approach what being a disciple means. And it's not of course, to deal with the theology of those groups. But in that respect, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have at least seen the responsibility for public exposure. The world's intense darkness is a discouragement. And it is sometimes, in some of those illustrations I read, I mentioned before, that come to mind to me, almost debilitating. But it's also an opportunity. If you were to walk outside this building, in a few moments, holding a flashlight, it's not going to make a difference. 
But if all the lights in the area were out and all the electricity was out, and if you did the same thing, it would radiate for a long while. The more intense the darkness, the more clearly people can see the light. And so as our world becomes seemingly more intensely evil, then our light, even sometimes flickering and dim as it is, can penetrate the darkness and can point people to God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What does this passage teach us about the world? What does this passage teach us about disciples? And what does the passage teach us about God? I want to tell you one of the things that's particularly striking to me in the Sermon on the Mount is how frequently Jesus refers to God as your Father or your Father who is in heaven. In all of those passages behind me from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, They deal with God as our Father. God is called Father in the Old Testament. You see that in Isaiah 63 verse 16. Isaiah 64 verse 8 as examples of that. He is called our Father in the Apocrypha in a few passages. But in the teaching of Jesus and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, you see a concentration of this emphasis on God as Father. And not to say everything about that subject now, though we may get to explore it more fully later. What we see with that phrase is God knows our needs and God supplies our needs. God sees our smallest acts of service and rewards them abundantly. He forgives us if we are willing to forgive others. But but He is worthy, and this is what I particularly want to emphasize here, but the use of this term Father, He is worthy of our obedience and our praise. Look at verse Matthew 7 in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. God is worthy of our submission, of our obedience, our reverence. In Matthew 5 and verse 16, God is worthy of our praise. Let your light show, show let your light shine before men in such a way as they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God is worthy of our honor, our praise, and our glory. When we consider the whole biblical story, or as Ryan said earlier, we view history this as a piece of art and see the cross and resurrection at the very center. It is amazing, it is overwhelming to see all our Father has done 
to bring us back into a relationship with Him. It is amazing to see His love for us. He is worthy of all our glory and all our praise. May God help us to give it to Him. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank You for this day, for this chance to worship. We thank You for turning us from darkness to light. And we pray, O Lord, that we have personal holiness and public exposure to the sense, to the degree that we not not try to attract praise to ourselves, but we try to point all people to you. May that be our goal. May that be our desire. May we let our light shine so they may glorify you. Hold us in your hand. Help us to walk this way before the world so that you receive us home in glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Conversion is sometimes talked about as turning from darkness to light. Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. And some have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14. If you are in darkness, if you are in sin, and you want to walk in the light, if you want forgiveness from God, the New Testament we see people who did that Uh, who were convinced Jesus died and rose again, turning from their sins in repentance and be baptized into Christ for remission of sins. If we can help you to do that, we want to as we stand and sing.